0: Good morning, everyone. I'm excited today to be starting on Haggai chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Haggai chapter 2. If you're still struggling to to find it, uh, after four weeks in the series, I'll remind you it's the third to last book in the Old Testament. So go to Matthew and work your way back. You'll soon find Haggai. It's two short chapters. And today uh, we begin uh, chapter 2, and I'm going to read now chapter 2 verses 1 to 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong." O Zerubbabel, declared the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of land, declares the Lord, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Dear God, as we gather together, I ask you for your grace as we consider this passage. I ask that there would be unity in your church as your spirit works among us. I ask that you would encourage us and if any face discouragement, Even despair today, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, you would strengthen your church and you would cause us to walk in the work of the Lord with joy and with peace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God, have I wasted my time on a fool's errand? These are the words that were prayed by a young Elizabeth Elliot, The wife of Jim Elliot, who we know was one of the five missionaries killed by the Huarani tribe in Ecuador when they were trying to reach them with the gospel. Now we know the story uh, of that attempt, and we know as well that Elizabeth Elliot um, stayed on and tried to reach her husband's killers with the gospel. But not too many people know that this wasn't her first attempt at mission work in South America. She had been working for quite a while, even before she was married to Jim Elliott, and she was a, a linguist. She was trying to lay the foundation for the translation of the Bible into the language of one of uh, another tribe there in South America, whom she calls the, the Colorado tribe in her memoirs. And she speaks of needing an informant. An informant in, in this kind of work is somebody who knows the language that you're trying to translate the Bible into somebody who knows its ins and outs, but who can also speak your language, or a language that you know. And so there's that bridge between the, the linguist and the people. She spent weeks and weeks trying to find an informant. and Eventually, she, she did. And there was somebody who was eager for the work, who spoke Spanish, which she knew, and spoke the language of the people fluently as well. And so they spent weeks making great progress in laying down this foundational work. And abruptly, one night, um, people raided this man's home, and uh, in, in the chaos that ensued, he was shot in the head. And she says in her memoirs, just like that, I, I lost my God-sent informant and my friend. Painstakingly, she continued in this work and spent nine months Um, laying this foundation, trying to lay the foundation for being able to translate the the Bible into this language. She moved one day, and her bags were sent ahead of her, I believe, and those bags were stolen with all her work in it, nine months gone. Uh, You know, I think on a Friday night, what if my computer crashed and I lost this week's sermon and that's a nightmare for me? I cannot imagine what she must have been feeling at this time. God, what are you doing? Have I wasted my time on a fool's errand, she writes. Have you ever felt like that before? Ever been trying, trying to do something in the kingdom of heaven, do a ministry or a work, and it just doesn't seem to be working out? You don't have the resources that you need, or you feel that you're not enough for the task, You've poured yourself maybe into a counseling situation, weeks and weeks trying to help somebody and it ended up poorly anyway. Or you've poured yourself into a ministry that just doesn't seem to be able to get off the ground. Maybe it's something in your your Christian walk where you're trying to be obedient to the Lord but you feel discouraged, discouraged in your, your marriage or in parenting with a difficult child or in your fight against sin. Feel like it's just not working out. God, is, is this a fool's errand? We all get it. There's nobody who is immune to discouragement. It's a battle that we, we all face at one point or another. Well, we're in good company in the book of Haggai. So you, you remember the Jews have come back from Babylon, from the exile tasked with rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And they come back eager and enthusiastic, but soon that zeal turns into discouragement because of opposition in the land. And Hagar comes after 16 years where they've been in the land without working on the temple. They're, they're Discouragement has led to spiritual complacency and Haggai comes to try and whip them back into shape. We've seen this over the last few weeks. Why do you say that now is not the time to rebuild the Lord's house? How can you live, he says, in your uh, decorated houses while this house lies in ruins? And something amazing happens. The people repent. They come together for the rebuilding work and they begin again this dangerous work. Now in Haggai chapter two, something has happened. Discouragement has begun to set in again. Only a month into the rebuilding work, something has happened. They've reverted back to this discouragement. That message that we saw last week where God said, I am with you, has begun to fade from their hearts. And so Haggai Needs to speak to them again, and he comes to reorder their perspective. His message in this passage is that you are seeing all, you're seeing things all the wrong way. You need to change your perspective. You need to change the way that you look at your past, and look at your present, and look forward into your future. And so as we consider this encouraging message, this is what Haggai has to say to us. There's a kind of looking around, a kind of looking back, and a kind of looking forward that leads to discouragement, even in the Christian walk. He addresses this in verses 1 to 3, and then in verses 4 to 9, he speaks about the way to look back, to look around, and to look forward that leads to strength. And so that's what we're going to do today, we're going to look briefly at the perspective that leads to to discouragement in verses one to three. And then we're gonna spend most of our time looking at a changed perspective, seeing things from God's perspective in a way that would lead to strength and perseverance as we work for the Lord. Number one, the perspective that leads to discouragement. Um, Don't you find it frustrating that your heart, I know it's true for me, my heart reverts so quickly back to discouragement. I can be on a spiritual high now, and within hours my heart begins to change. They had only worked for a month, and already that change was happening. I, I read and I asked the question, how do you go from this great day of revival and repentance to a couple months later, that, that message, I'm with you, fading from your heart. We know as Christians that if we're not careful, our outlook can change so quickly and we lose sight of God and his strength. What happened for them? Let's take a look again at those first three verses. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the Haggai, the prophet, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, speak to Joshua, speak to the remnant of the people, and say to them, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Does that ring a bell with you? God is echoing, I believe, the questions that are ringing in their hearts. We know from Ezra chapter three that when they had laid the foundation of this new temple, there were young people who were maybe born in exile and young people even born in the land who were working in the temple, but there were older people who had lived before the exile and had seen the temple in its former glory. And they see the foundation of this temple and they know what we're building is not the same. We can't accomplish what they did. And it led to despair in their hearts, weeping at the comparison. You can just picture it, the the work begins. And as they're working, these older men are talking about those glory days, what the temple looked like, the vision before their eyes and soon that reminiscing leads to nostalgia. And the thing about nostalgia is if you're not careful, it quickly can lead to disappointment in what's around you and hopelessness for the future. Someone has said it's difficult to move forward when you're always looking back. Solomon, who built the first temple, had a labor force that was three times, more than three times, the total number of returnees who are back in the land of Israel at this time. And they worked for seven years on that temple. He had tons and tons of silver and gold and the world's most skilled workers. What these people who had returned to the land of Jerusalem, what they had, could not compare. They were a resource-strapped band of misfits just trying to pick up broken Stones and put them on top of other broken stones. The timing of this is also important. He says it's the 21st day of the seventh month. This is the final day, we know, of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. During this feast in Jerusalem, they would leave their houses and camp out in in booths and tents in the streets, and they would remember God's goodness to them when they left the land of Egypt, how he provided for them in the wilderness. They would remember as well his goodness in the present time. It was a celebration of the harvest and what God was doing in their lives. This was also, by the way, the same day, centuries before, when the first temple was dedicated to the Lord. They completed the building of the temple and dedicated it to the Lord with this joy and celebration. Well, this time in the the city of Jerusalem, the feast is different. The harvest has not been good. And so there's disappointment. Perhaps at this feast, they're just reminded of of their struggle and of how difficult things are. And they're looking around them, and all they can see is their own weakness. They're looking behind them, and they're paralyzed with this fear. The best days are behind us. And so they're looking forward and they're thinking, we can't do it. God, we cannot do what you want us to do. We cannot accomplish the glory of that temple, so why even bother? If you're looking back and all that you can see is how it was better then, it's hard to be joyful. It's hard to be hopeful in the present. This happens in businesses, it happens in families, it happens in nations, and it happens in churches. Judgment by comparison kills the spirit. When I was studying for this passage, it struck me how relevant this actually is for us, for the church in COVID worldwide at the moment. I was guilty just this week of complaining to my small group, saying I'm I'm just fed up. I'm fed up with these restrictions. I'm fed up with the way things are. I miss how it used to be. I was here before lockdown. I was here for about five weeks. My ordination service, the the room was packed out. It had a a different atmosphere and a different feel, didn't it? People, when we came back in October, were saying, it it doesn't feel the same. It's almost exactly like the old men looking back at the, the glory of the temple before and weeping at the comparison. But the danger in this is that you're not setting your heart to meet the task that is set before you today. What is God calling us to today? And if you're looking around, even in your present, and all you can see is how much better he is or how much smarter she is than you. I'm not as good a a mother or a father or a student or a pastor as that person. Their ministry is better, their family is happier. I'm too weak, my life doesn't compare. God, the task that you've given me is too difficult. I'm not enough. When you make these wrong comparisons, that's a one-way trip to discouragement. In the Bible, even the great heroes of the faith are vulnerable to this. From the story of Elijah, I know, to God my heart, every Monday, The spiritual high that comes on a Sunday is usually followed by something else on a Monday when discouragement sometimes sets in. Now Elijah we know was involved in that great victory on on Mount Carmel. Elijah, the one prophet against 400 prophets of Baal and God rains fire down in victory and right after that everything changes. Jezebel is furious and she wants to kill Elijah and so Elijah all of a sudden finds himself on the run for his life. He ends up in in the wilderness under a tree, discouraged, tired, depressed, saying, God, take my life. What's the point? Why bother? I'm the only one left who is faithful. And God comes with a message to Elijah. Basically, stop looking at things from your perspective. Your tiny vantage point, Elijah. He says, I have 7,000 who are still faithful have not bent the knee to Baal. I'm still working in your time. Are you discouraged, Elijah? Are you discouraged, Christian? Are you discouraged, church? Is your calling too heavy and your arms too weak? You need to change your perspective. So number two, let's look at the perspective in verses four to nine that leads to strength. They're looking at their situation and they see only weakness. They see only a glory that's been lost and a hopeless future. And Haggai's message to them in verse four is, change the way that you're looking around you. And in verse five, change the way that you're looking behind you. And in verses six to nine, change the way that you look ahead. So let's look at verse four. Change the way you look around you. He said to them in verse three, when you look at the temple, how does it look before you? How how do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? And then in verse four, he says, yet now. He uses the word now again, and he's going to say to them, let me show you your now, but not from your perspective, from my perspective. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. I find it amazing throughout the Bible, the, the command not to fear is the, uh, the, the, the most common command in all of scripture. And only God can say to somebody who is weak, be strong, be strong. Isn't it a strange command? You could command me right now to drop and give you a 100 push-ups. And it doesn't matter how much you shout at me, It doesn't matter what you offer me. It's not gonna happen, all right? There's an aspect of strength and endurance that's just not present. They're looking around and they're saying, we can't do it. We can't do what you want us to do. We don't have what it takes. We don't have the strength. We can't achieve it, so why even bother? And God says, since when was the determining factor your ability and your strength work? For I am with you. When you're facing discouragement, dis- disappointment in your life, in, in ministry, maybe in a role that God has given to you, what you need to do is realize that if He is in the task, right, if He's in it with you, then it doesn't matter. It's not about how great you are, it's about Him and His presence. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and commissioned him, lead my people out of Egypt, Moses said, I can't do it. Send somebody else, I'm not able. And God's message was the same. Moses, I will be with you. That is the one determining factor that gives force to God's command to weak people, be strong. Christ made a promise to us, one that has never failed. We're looking in our home groups now at this commission. Christ gave it to his disciples saying, go and make disciples of all nations. And in that that work, that dangerous work, that life consuming task that lay everything down at the foot of Jesus kind of work, Jesus in the same breath said something and made a promise, a promise to infuse into every effort hope and endurance and purpose and value. What did he say? I am with you, even to the end of the age. I believe the New Testament's parallel to Haggai's command is found in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Mother, are you tired of changing nappies? Are you tired of the endless dishes, the homework, the stubborn kids? Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Servant, are you tired of a ministry that nobody seems to see or even care about? Your silent labor is not in vain. Christian, are you tired of your struggle in your Christian walk, seeing no rhyme or reason to it? Why must I suffer like this? Your labor of trust, your labor of joy, your labor labor of self-control is not in vain in the Lord. Be strong and put your hand to the work because God is with you. This is the perspective change that we're all called to make on a daily basis. I'm gonna face discouragement with the satisfaction of the presence of God even when it seems like my labor is in vain. Look around you, he says. In verse five, look behind you. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. This is a profound message to to change the way that you're looking behind you. My covenant stands, he says. My spirit is still with you. Is uncertainty perhaps eating at them? We were in in exile for decades. Has God forgotten about us? Is this why all the struggle is happening? And his answer to them is, my promise still stands. Great is my faithfulness. You are weak, but my purpose will come to pass. He says, my spirit, what he means is the same spirit Looking back, the same spirit that led the people out of Egypt, the same spirit that filled Moses and filled Joshua for the tasks that were bigger than them. The same spirit that filled David and Solomon in the building of the first temple. My same spirit is with you, he says. You're looking back and you're remembering what was and you're despairing. I am the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Listen to these familiar words. Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. This is from 1 Chronicles 28 verse 20. These are the words spoken to Solomon when he built the first temple. God is saying to them and repeating that message, he's saying, I was there and I'm still here now. Why are you making these comparisons? Christian, are you allowing uncertainty due to your past to question today, is God with me? When we come to Christ, we come with this understanding, I I don't stand on what I've done I don't, I don't stand on what I do. I stand on what Christ has done for me and that's how I stand loved before the Father. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christian, have you forgotten that His Spirit is with you? The same Spirit, Paul says in Romans 8, that raised Jesus from the grave dwells in you. Is that, is that a small comfort? God's spirit lives in me. Fear not, he says. Stop seeing your overwhelming weakness and start seeing my sufficient grace. Now, having shown them their past and their now, from his perspective, he's gonna move to the future. How do you look ahead in a way that leads to strength in verses six to nine? declares the Lord of hosts. Now there was an imminent fulfillment to this prophecy, this looking forward even for them. They are worried. Are we laboring for nothing? Are we putting our energy into something that cannot be achieved? We cannot possibly match the glory of Solomon's temple, so why even bother? What's the point? And God's saying to them, all the gold is mine. All the silver is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. If I want the temple to be filled with gold and silver, I will take the nations by their legs. I will tip them upside down and I will shake them until all that is mine comes in. That's what he's saying to them. In other words, let me worry about what to do with your small efforts. after this time, a kind of reversal of what happened when Babylon ransacked the temple occurs. So at this point, um, we know Cyrus originally gave the decree that said they could go back and build the temple. Then after Cyrus, Artaxerxes gave a decree that they must stop. And so for 16 years they do nothing. And now they begin again under the, the prophecy of Haggai and so Tatanai, who's the kind of governor over the, the larger area, writes to the new emperor Darius saying they're beginning this work. Can we oppose them? And Darius, what he does is he goes and he searches the records and he sees Cyrus's original command, edict. And so Darius says to Tatanai, stop opposing this work. In fact, he has all the treasure that Babylon stole. He gives it back to them. for for, for use in the temple. And so there is a kind of imminent fulfillment of what is spoken of in verses six to nine. But it's also clear that there's something to come, a future fulfillment in this passage that is glorious beyond belief. Verse nine speaks of a a latter glory that will be greater than the former glory. It speaks of a, a peace that will come from this place, this temple. So now, what I wanna do, I'm gonna ask for a bit of grace and I'm gonna ask for you to stick with me, all right? Because there are different ways to interpret this passage and usually a preacher can just approach a passage like this, give his own view and move on and it'd be fine, but both views exist side by side in our church. And so what I want to do is I'm gonna share my view, I I believe I have to share how this passage uh, causes us to hope, but I wanna approach with humility and I wanna approach by asking you for grace. Uh, I've studied hard so that I can be generous. We're talking about covenantalism versus dispensationalism and how we interpret this passage. Stick with me for a little while if you will. So there are some who would say that Haggai 2 verse six to nine uh, joins with other passages of scripture like Ezekiel 40 to 48, which describes a future glorious temple. And Isaiah 60, in which all the nations come to the sanctuary of the Lord with their treasures in hand. They, they flock to the mountain of the Lord. Zechariah 2, which speaks of, uh, similar to Haggai 2 here, the shaking of plunder, and God dwelling with his people in Jerusalem. And so putting all of these passages together, there's some who who say there must be a time in the future because in AD 70, the temple that they built was destroyed, was destroyed. And so for for all of these Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled, there must be a time in the future where the temple is rebuilt and the sacrifice continues there. And so what I want to say in generosity to this position is that If you read the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus and you look at all of these passages, um, your hope would be there's gonna come a time. They're looking around at the, the nations that are afflicting them. They're looking inward at their own sin. There's gonna come a time where it will not be like this. There will be perfect peace with God in our midst in his holy temple. That would have been the hope of Israel. We do look forward to a glorious temple and the nations flocking to that temple to see Yahweh. So what do we make of the temple destroyed in eighty seventy? Is there gonna be a future temple? So again, I say some in our church, they believe this is the hope and they believe, their heart is to stick to a literal interpretation of, of these prophecies and we commend that. We would say we all desire that. That's how we should be approaching scripture. In, in response, humbly, this is what I believe. I believe that the literal interpretation is um, somewhat literalistic. Um, just because something can be taken literally a certain way doesn't mean that that's how it's intended to be taken. There's symbolic language in a lot of these passages, like Ezekiel 40 to 48, especially that speaks of this, yes, it speaks of a glorious temple, but there's language there that doesn't quite fit if you're gonna take it all Literally. Revelation 21 to 22, which speaks of the new heaven and the new earth, picks up a lot of these hopes and picks up a lot of the language in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. And I I don't have time now to look at all those pictures. I love the conversation, all right? So if you wanna press me on this and change my mind, I'm open to that. Let's have coffee and we can speak about all these passages. But I believe that there's a glorious future that the Old Testament anticipates, but the way that it anticipates it is by speaking to an old covenant people in a language that is old covenant language. In other words, this is how it's gonna be, perfect peace, perfect worship, but described in worship language that they understood in the language of the temple, the physical temple. Furthermore, if the New Testament looks forward to the destruction of that temple, which Jesus did, He looked forward to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and Revelation, we believe, was written after it it, and so was aware of it. I would expect to find somewhere in the New Testament some kind of language, something to give comfort to a people who are seeing the temple be destroyed. But there is not a word that I know of in all of the New Testament that would cause any hope in a physical temple. Why the silence? In fact, when the New Testament talks about this temple, you read the book of Hebrews, it talks about the sacrificial system. And the language used is that it's forever made obsolete by Jesus. Jesus, who is the great high priest, the perfect once and for all sacrifice. And now, in fairness, we must say, that the dispensational position does not, the best of the dispensational position that says there will be a future temple with future sacrifices, they do not jeopardize the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. All right, they love Hebrews as much as I love Hebrews. They say, from what I've read, that the the future sacrifices of the temple would look back upon the cross in the same way that the Old Testament temple looks forward to the cross. But I believe Hebrews speaks so strongly about it that the weight of, of exegesis in finding something in the New Testament, looking forward to this physical temple hasn't been found or matched. The New Testament is not silent. It speaks a lot about this temple and the hope of the Old Testament. And I believe what the New Testament offers is a glorious, and future hope, something that was beyond imagination and something way better than a physical temple. G.K. Beale, the the biblical scholar says, to see Christ and the church, I would say to add the new heaven, the new earth that God will make and, and dwell with us there. To see that as the true end time temple is neither an allegorical spiritualization of the Old Testament temple, nor of the prophecies of an eschatological temple but is an identification of the temple's real meaning. So what does the New Testament say? The temple that they worked so hard to build was going to be destroyed in eighty seventy, but not before the Messiah came. There was something important there in God's plans. Jesus came and he came to the temple in Matthew 12, and verse 6, and said something greater than the temple is here. John 2, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt tabernacled among us. And when Christ was born, his parents took him to the temple to dedicate him. And on that day, and since and before, the Lord of the temple was there The greater temple was there, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily was there. It was the greatest glory that the temple, the earthly temple, had ever seen. John Calvin says, for though they were to gather the treasures of a thousand worlds into one mass, such a glory would yet be corruptible. But when God the Father appeared in the person of his own Son, he then glorified indeed his temple. A peace that the earthly temple was never quite able to accomplish came only through Jesus Christ. Christ shed his blood for our sin. And when he did so, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom as peace was made between God and man, and we were welcomed before God. And Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility so that now Jew and Greek alike Together, our fellow citizens of another household, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And so in Acts chapter 2, there's this room of 120 scared, tired people waiting, and God shows up. The Holy Spirit descends upon them, and the place is shaken, and he, he descends upon them in tongues of fire, and the gospel is preached in the tongues of men, and with Christ as a cornerstone now, we are built as living stones upon Him into a holy temple, 1 Peter 2 says. R.B. said the glory of the greatest, wealthiest, most powerful, and most resplendent empire in all of history was as nothing, Yes, less than nothing in comparison with the glory of the church of Christ. And in fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes of all the nations streaming to the sanctuary of the Lord, bringing with them their treasure. And a peace flowing from that sanctuary out into the world. Revelation 21 speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, a holy city. A new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And listen to the language here. Revelation 21, 22 to 24. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This, I believe, is the fulfillment of that latter glory. God in our midst. And so we can gaze today back in awestruck wonder at what God did with the weakness of this tired and worried Israel in Haggai's day. With the Spirit of God among them, they would build the temple, and that temple would be the shadow present when the reality, Christ, came and stepped foot upon it the hope of the nations, the peacemaker between God and man and the cornerstone of a spiritual temple and the one who will return for us so that we will live forever with our God and the whole earth will be his sanctuary. Every tear will be wiped away and there will be joy forevermore. God did more with their weakness than they could ever have imagined. And so we, we look back and we look upon that and we know in our struggle today that God is doing something even today. We have the same comfort that they had that day. God is with us, and the trouble we see around us we know will not last. It will not last once everything is shaken as Hagar prophesies. There's one thing that will not be shaken, the book of Hebrews says a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and so we strain forward saying, I have no lasting city, but I seek the city that is to come. The latter glory, greater than anything that has ever been seen, is coming. And while life today brings with it grief and trouble, there is coming a day where God himself will dwell in our midst. And so we bring our weakness. Today we bring our weakness to the table resting upon the grace of Christ's finished work. We bring our weakness to the table, trusting in the power of God's present spirit and looking forward to the glory of what God will bring so that today we can pick up hammer and nail and go to work knowing that every drop of blood, sweat and every tear that is dropped given for the sake of the kingdom will be found to be absolutely worth it. So be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Christian knowing that today, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Have I wasted my time on a fool's errand? Elizabeth Elliot said when struggles and loss came. You're a fool, they said to Jim Elliot when he was considering dangerous work in South America. But as he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Where have you set your hope today? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this glorious future that we have ahead of us. We thank you for your spirit among us, your presence with us now. We thank you for our past the cross that looms over our lives, your grace and forgiveness. And so we pray that you would meet us in our discouragements and our disappointments today, Lord. You would meet us with your grace and with hope and with joy. Amen.